you brought a Bible with you, uh, trust that you did. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 tonight as we uh, continue our way thinking through the series we've titled Steady, meaning uh, trying to focus on what it means to steadily be a Christ follower, be committed to following him and being rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so tonight we're going to start a something I've never done before, a, a two-part sermon uh, called A Portrait of Christ. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 17 tonight, and then next Wednesday, Lord willing, we will look together at 18, 19, and 20. And we look at a portrait of Christ. So if you're there in Colossians chapter 1, if you would stand as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him All things consist. So this is the word of the Lord. Praise him for it, that he's preserved it for us and allowed us to gather together and read it together. So let's pray together this evening. Father, we come to you tonight and we recognize very quickly that you are the author of the word. That's your word alone, that you've breathed it out to us to transform us and change us. Father, we just sang a very risky song asking you to make us more like Christ, even if that means taking everything from us. I think, Father, sometimes we're too casual with the words that we say to you. And so, Father, I pray that if our hearts weren't sincere, that you would recognize that. You'd convict us of it. We've just asked you to make us more like you through the person and work of your son, even if it means taking everything from us. And Father, we know tonight that we're not the only people on the planet who are worshiping you or serving you. Think tonight of other ministries, even in our own city. Think of uh, the Young Adults Ministry at High Street under the direction of Jared Bone. We just pray that you would be with that ministry, that you would pour out your richest blessings on it. Think of another church in town like Spring Hill Baptist Church, God, and, and pastor there, Jared Proctor. We just ask that you would you would minister through the churches in our city, that we wouldn't think that it's just Crossway that's accomplishing things for your glory, but there would be churches through the city reaching you. We also know that the United States of America isn't the only place that has the gospel. And we think of missionaries tonight over the globe. We think of the Cokes who are serving in Southeast Asia or the Alberts who are serving in the country of Wales, God, pray that you might use them to bring more people to know you, that they might be able to reach people who are far from you with the gospel, Father, that we would see lives transformed. God, we're also aware tonight, probably more so than ever, that there are people who have never heard your name. So, Father, we're praying each and every Wednesday night that you would raise up from our college ministry from our church, from our city, people to go and reach unreached people groups. I think of the Romani people in in the country of Iran 
or the Berber people in the country of Morocco, God, people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And tonight we sit in a comfortable building uh, with our Bibles open in front of us, hundreds of Bibles, while people all over the globe don't know you. So raise up a generation of people, great commission-minded people, who would take your word to the farthest reaches of this globe. Be with us now as we consider your word. May it pierce our hearts. May we have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe. It's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. You know, many times uh, we can think of the word portrait, uh, and we can think of a picture or a famous painting, and assume that we've mastered it or we've looked at it. Consider, if you will, the painting American Gothic, which is on the screens before you now. Uh, This familiar art image painting was uh, publicly exhibited for the first time at the Art Institute of Chicago in the year 1930. Its prize, it won $300. But it did grant instant fame to its painter, Grant Wood. Now, the, the thought behind this painting, the drive behind it came while Wood was visiting the small town of Eldon in his native Iowa. There he spotted a little wood farmhouse with a single oversized window made in a style that's commonly referred to as carpenter gothic. This is what Grant Wood said. I imagine American gothic people with their faces stretched out long to go with this American gothic house. He actually used his sister and his dentist as models for a farmer and his daughter. Commonly thought of as a farmer and his wife, but it's actually a farmer and his daughter. Dressing them as if they were tintypes from my old family album. And then later he would return and settle in Iowa and he became increasingly appreciative of Midwestern traditions and culture, which he celebrated in works such as this. You say, David, why show us this picture? Well, because American Gothic is often misunderstood. It's often thought to be a satirical comment, a joking comment on the Midwest, when in reality, Wood intended it to be a positive statement about rural American values an image of reassurance at a time of great dislocation and disillusionment. Think the early 1930s. The man and woman in their solid and well-crafted world with all their strengths and weaknesses represent survivors. This picture has often been used to mock and to put down the Midwest despite Wood's original intention. Say, David, I think there's much, especially around this time of year, that is assumed about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yet again, we stare down the barrel of yet another Christmas, assuming that we understand and know and are relatively acquainted with Jesus Christ. Only to find that when we closely read the Bible, the Christ that we think we know isn't the one that's described in the scriptures. And so what I want us to do tonight is like those who would walk through, whether it's the Smithsonian, whether it's the the Art Institute of Chicago, wherever it might be in a museum where you might think, I already know this, to stop 
and look again at the person of Christ with fresh eyes tonight. Assuming I know something of Christ, but is the picture actually the reality of who he is? And the Apostle Paul, as he moves on to describe the person of Jesus Christ, he lays out in these verses a picture of what Jesus looks like, of who he is and what he entails. And so tonight, from this particular text, verse by verse, line by line, I want us to observe three qualities of Christ. Three qualities of Christ. One being found in verse 15, that Jesus Christ is eternal. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Right at the beginning, the Apostle Paul says something that is striking about the person of Jesus Christ. That he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you read your Bible, you'll find in John 1.18 that the idea is that no one has seen God. No one had seen him. No one had become aware of him. No one had laid eyes on him. And then, born in a manger, laid in a manger, is this little baby Jesus, and Mary and Joseph and all the different nativity characters will come in, and for the first time ever, man will be able to say, I have seen God. Even when we read of Moses' encounter in the Old Testament with God, we know that Moses doesn't actually see God, only the backside of it. Because Moses understood this, so did God, praise God, that if Moses were to see the full experience of God in his glory, it would kill him. How else do you explain when you read the book of Exodus, Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai and his face shines with the glory of God to the level that the people of the nation of Israel are terrified of Moses. They're, they're terrified of him. They don't want to be around him. They don't want to see him. They don't want to be near him. But he's experienced the glory of God to the point that his face shines, the text reads. But here in Colossians, Paul reminds us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This image of God, as describing Jesus, points both to two things. His function and his being. Function in the sense that for the first time ever, God can be seen. It's a different function that we've ever experienced with Christ. Now, you say, we experience with Christ. Yes, those who are actually present. I know we have not seen him. But it's the hope that one day we will that drives us to continue to worship him. But being, his being is much greater. And, and notice, he is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't arrive as God. He's the image of God. Meaning that when Jesus Christ appears, when he is born, when he grows up, as he lives out his life, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, what is taking place is not that God has been created, 
but that he's always existed. He's merely come into to take on human flesh. That's what Philippians 2 says. He humbles himself and takes the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and becomes obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And in this moment, Jesus goes from being God in the Godhead to being God in human flesh. Nothing about him changes other than taking on the human person. This is important. It's significant. We might rush through this. He's the image of the invisible God. And that second phrase may trip us up. He's referred to as the firstborn over all creation. And what happens here is, wait, firstborn over all creation. And this is where people will take this verse and pull it out of context and suggest that Jesus was created. That he hasn't always existed, but that merely he's been created by God. It was a very famous heresy. We talked about it on Sunday. We talked about the person of Arius who suggested that Jesus has been created, that he hasn't always existed. At the Council of Nicaea, if you remember from Sunday, St. Nicholas is very frustrated with Arius and decides, history tells us, we should say history speculates, St. Nick punches Arius in the face. And while that might be humorous to us, what's more significant is a man by the name of Athanasius. He's a small theologian. You say, why is he a small? He's actually referred to in church history as a dwarf. This is funny. Everyone's like scared to laugh. That's what other people called him. I think he ran with it. Athanasius, an Egyptian theologian, shows up at the Council of Nicaea and he stands and he defends the doctrine of Christ being a person of the Godhead, stating that Christ is not of a like substance to God. He is of the same substance, meaning he's not created by God. He is God in human flesh. You have to understand this, especially around Christmas time. God is not creating a God. This is God appearing for the first time to his people. In fact, Athanasius would say this. Those who maintain that there was a time when the son was not, meaning that he didn't always exist, rob God of his word like plunderers. So rather than punching Arius in the face, Athanasius gets up and punches him with his word. Because for all of the remainder of church history, we'll be reminded of Athanasius standing and defending. And it, it made me ask this question to myself. A lot of times in life, we assume that certain people are just going to naturally take care of theological problems. There's a theological problem, a theologian will fix it. That's why we have all these Bible college students. David, why are you belaboring this point? Because every Christian has a responsibility to defend and articulate 
why and what they believe. Why and what they believe. Not merely to, to say, well, that's for a pastor. Let's ask this theologian. No, it's what do you say about what you believe? That Jesus is eternal. He doesn't come into existence. He's not created by God, but that he's always existed in the person of the Godhead. So what is the Apostle Paul doing here? Well, Paul is pointing to this firstborn right. This idea of being the firstborn. You know, in our current society, being the firstborn doesn't necessarily carry the weight that it once did. In in Bible times, if you're not first, you're last. When it comes to inheritance time. When it comes to everything that is left behind by Ma and Pa Kettle, you get the biggest slice of the pie. If you're second or third or eighth or twelfth, you're getting a smaller portion. If you're first, you're getting the most. I think we should reinstitute that policy personally, being the firstborn. I know there are others that might disagree. But what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's using a biblical term to point to the supremacy and the weight and the majesty of Christ. That he's the firstborn. Every person, every being will ultimately bow, he says in Philippians chapter 2, to Christ. Every knee will submit and call on the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul is pointing us to a role that he's not only eternal, but he's also supreme. That he is number one. This is who God has entrusted in his divine plan to rescue humanity. I want to ask you this, this evening. When you think about Christ... Do you dwell on the fact that long before you were and long after you are, Christ will still be? Long before you were and long after you are, Christ will still be. He is eternal. And when was the last time that you worshipped him for being eternal? I mean, really worshipped him. That he's not new. And I hate fads. I hate them. Because you're never sure if you're in with the new thing. Christ isn't a fad. He didn't just come on the scene. He's not the new thing. He's not the new person. He's always existed and will continue to exist. He's worthy of being worshipped because of that. We don't worship him for being eternal. Do we even meditate on this outside of church? I'm going to ask you this tonight. Do you think about the stuff you're taught at church outside of it? out time and say I'm going to spend this amount of time at church or is it just merely just I'm just checking it off so I can hear some sermons see my friends and go if that's the case beloved 
You're no better than the Rotary Club or Twin Oaks Country Club. If all we're going to do is just come here so he can say, yeah, I went to church this week. But if this doesn't change us, if we're not moved by who Christ is, then why come at all? Why waste your time? Why claim to be a Christ follower if the only time it seems to be important is for an hour on Wednesday and an hour and two on Sunday? Some of you are more devoted to your sports team, to your hobbies, and the devotion that you carry out towards them. I know I can fall into this trap as well. I have plenty to answer for. Christ is eternal. And because of that, he's worthy to be worshipped for being eternal. But he's not just eternal. He's also creator. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. What the Apostle Paul tells us about the person and work of Christ is that he's active in creation. You know, a lot of times we'll say, you know, God created the world and everything in it in six literal days. And on the seventh day, he rested. Yes, we want to affirm that. But God the Father spoke through Christ the Son, and the Spirit's power enables creative moment to take place. We can't afford to forget that we are Trinitarian Christians, meaning we believe in the Godhead united together, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, co-eternal and co-equal. Meaning this, that Christ is present at creation, that he is doing creation. All things were created by him and through him. That's what the Apostle Paul is pointing us to. The creator, Christ, is the supreme being to all creatures are supposed to submit and worship to. Christ deserves to be worshipped because he created you and me. And I love this. For by him all things were created that are in heaven. And that are on earth. And just in case you're tempted to think, what does that mean? It means everything visible and invisible to the human eye. Thrones or dominions. Principalities or powers. Every bit of it he has created and controls. All of creation bows to the will and work of Christ. All of creation listens to his voice. All of creation is responsible to Christ. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And we walk around as if he's in control of none of it. We're guilty of this. We're guilty of this. Of thinking he's not really as in control 
yeah, sure, David, he created through it. He's doing it. But he steps back from it. No, beloved, he's not. He's actively present. And, and you know what? If you're sitting in here tonight and you think for just one second, he's not. I, I can tell you, I can tell you that I've been there and I've struggled with that. This past year has been incredibly difficult from a personal standpoint. The last few years have been difficult. This year has proven to be even more difficult. When you know, by all intents and purposes, that the Lord has put you on the path that you are walking on, it is comfortable in the sense of I'm comforted by knowing that Christ is directing my path and that I'm walking in it, but that doesn't always help when we're dealing with the obstacles that are on the road. I struggle with that. If no one else in the room, I've got a new ministry philosophy that I've tried out in our small group and now I'm bringing to the pulpit. If no one else is willing to be transparent, then I will be. And what I mean by that is we have walked through a difficult year. We've, we've walked through a difficult year in the sense of trusting God that he knows and is planning the path for us to have a child. And not being in control of that. And for some reason believing that if we didn't have to go through the route of adoption, that we would be more in control of it. But beloved, there is no sense in which we're in control of it. Because God opens and shuts the womb as he wills according to his good pleasure and for his glory. And if you want proof of that, read the Old Testament. Hannah laying, crying to God, saying, give me a child to the point that the prophet says, she must be drunk. She says, God, if you give us a child, we, we get we really get And the text tells us that he opens the womb, he gives her a child, and what does she do? She weans the child and takes the child back and delivers him and gives him to the Lord. It's been a difficult year in dealing with sin, both personal and corporate. I've been made more aware of this year of my own personal struggles and sins and and striving to do things in my own power, in my own strength, in my own will, and not relying on the person and work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I felt the pressure to measure up to human expectations and realities like never before, while at the same time being responsible as a shepherd, an under-shepherd of Christ, to call out sin, Rebuke students, chase them down, try to get them to come back into the fold, only to watch them turn and walk away. Beloved, if you think you're in control of your life, you're wrong. You don't control it. And you can't control it. In the sense of, 
God has a bigger purpose. And what he's shown me all through 2018 is God's trust me and my plans. Be faithful, be obedient to me. I was reminded of this again today, reading in, in, in my Bible reading. I uh, found myself in First uh, Samuel, uh, where, Sam, where Saul disqualifies himself. Saul was supposed to kill a group of people. And Samuel arrives on the scene. Saul says, we did it. And Samuel, as only a prophet of God can say, then why do I hear the sheep in the background? If you killed everything, shouldn't be hearing sheep right now. To which Saul says, well, we're going to do a sacrifice. Quick thinking came. We're going to do a sacrifice. That's why we did. We kept King Agag alive. And we kept the animals because we we're doing a sacrifice. And this is what Samuel says to Saul. Isn't it far better to be obedient to God than for him to smell a sacrifice? Now, if, we've, if we're Old Testament students, we go, well, he seems to delight in sacrifices. But Samuel, as a prophet, is putting his finger on the chest of Saul, metaphorically saying to him, it's far better for you to obey what God has called you to do than come up with your own plans and strategies for what you might think are the best ways to bring glory to God. And so tonight, I stand before you as a broken sinner in need of Christ's grace in my own life to live out what it means to do what God has called me to do. I'm reminded of this time and time again. I can hear R.C. Sproul saying it even as I read it. If there is one maverick molecule running its own way outside the sovereign hand of the creator of the universe, then we have no hope that God is supremely in control. Every molecule answers to Christ as the agent of creation. There's nothing outside of his control. And I have to be driven to my knees time and time and time again to submit to him. Because inside my heart, I want to bow up and go the opposite direction because I'm still putting to death my own sin nature. I'm still working on my own self. I want to be used by God. But the only way that I can be used by him is to submit to him. I want to point us to the last prepositional phrase in this verse. For him. All of creation is created through and by him, for him, for his glory. He is worthy to be praised. When was the last time you praised him for creating you? When was the last time you praised him for creating the world? We, we love different seasons. Some of you like winter. Some of you like summer. It, that's pretty much all that exists around here. There's not really four distinct seasons. Today, it's the second week of December. And it's 55 degrees outside. This part of the world is schizophrenic when it comes to weather. 
I love driving down 65 towards Branson in whatever qualifies as the fall around here. So that could be anywhere between uh, mid-May and the third week of January. I love to watch those trees as they change colors because it's evident sign of God's handiwork, but it also springs to mind spiritually what's taking place. Those leaves are beginning to die. But new creation is coming out of it. Bunyan said one time, there are trees that are planted somewhere and they produce no fruit because winter never comes. Some of you are walking through hard stuff. It's been a hard semester. feel like you've been pinned on the mat. Maybe God's trying to teach you something. Instead of asking, why, God, are you allowing me to walk through these difficult things? Are we not asking the question, what, God, are you trying to teach me through this? Some of you are walking through much harder things than I am. But to ask ourselves or to get down spiritually, instead of asking, God, what are you trying to teach me? Finally tonight, we not only see that Christ is eternal, that Christ is creator, we also see that Christ is continuous. Look in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I I did want to title this point Sustainer. But I went with continuous because he's continuously sustaining us. He's continuously sustaining us. Peter O'Brien is helpful here. He says, Christ is the sustainer of the sustainer of the universe and the unifying principle of its life. Apart from his continuous sustaining activity, all would disintegrate. If Christ is not continually sustaining the world, it disintegrates. What great hope we have tonight great trust we have that christ is continually sustaining us and again the question becomes what and how are you worshiping christ for who he is this goes back to our illustration at the beginning it's so easy for us to assume that we know who christ is and yet we don't often think rightly about who he is this is why jad packer wrote in the book, Knowing God, that the idea of creating pictures and paintings of Christ is anathema. Don't do it. It's not helpful. One only need to visit Lifeway or Mardell to understand how unhelpful it really is. Jesus Christ is not six foot four, a right hander out of the Middle East with blonde hair and blue eyes. If you've ever been to the Middle East, It's easy to tell that the blonde-haired, blue-eyed people are not from there. Yet we depict Christ this way. We don't praise him. 
We don't worship him for who he is. This has been the challenge for me this week as I've been studying this is I want to praise Christ rightly. And so I've been even thinking, God, what are the songs that I want to sing about you in the car when I'm away from church, when I'm not gathered together? What are those that I should sing that are worthy of your praise? Not this drivel where Jesus is your boyfriend. Stupid. Worthless and a waste of time. We need to reclaim worshiping Christ richly, deeply, and rightly. All praise to him, the God of light, who formed the mountains by his might. All praise to him who names the stars that sing his fame in skies afar. All praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. All praise to him whose love is seen in Christ the Son, the servant king, who left behind his glorious throne to pay the ransom for his own. All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin, and shame, who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. All praise to him whose power imparts the love of God within our hearts, the spirit of all truth and peace, the fount of joy and holiness. The Father, Son, and Spirit now, our souls we lift, our wills we bow. To you, the triune God, we raise with loving hearts our songs of praise. If you saw me driving around this week, there's a pretty good chance I was singing that as someone who knew all those words but didn't as loudly as I could get it to go. I want to exalt and exult a good Puritan word for praising and making much of Christ. I don't want to be a lightweight when it comes to the greatest heavyweight of all time. The one who defeated the toughest, most tenacious task in front of him with ease. With ease. He suffered, he bled, and he died. But make no mistake, he is in complete control the entire time. He exhibits that as he leaves the grave. He leaves the grave with his clothes on the table, his head wrapped on the table where they had laid his body. I think in a symbolic way to say, Jesus Christ never goes to a place and leaves it the same. He always leaves it better than what he found it. So tonight, two questions lay in front of us. To the believer tonight, are you seeing Christ rightly? And are you worshiping him for who he is? Are you gazing at him through the word to see him rightly? Maybe for the person who's sitting here tonight, who through the word you've realized the person who I thought I knew is not who I thought I knew at all. And I don't know him. Tonight there is no better time for you to be able to come to know him. Not know about him, but to know him for who he is. 
going into the questions that lie before us. Let's pray together this evening. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.